Welcome back, everybody, to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on America, China, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I'm Misha Oslin of the Hoover Institution, and I am joined by my partner in crime, John Yu, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. John, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Hey, Misha. How are you? How are you doing doing in the lockdown? We're doing okay. The lockdown uh, here in Maryland is unending because we have not flattened the curve, John. I I don't think they've ever had a mathematical equation where their curve didn't flatten, but we're not flattening. So we're still locked down. Uh, And meanwhile, the world is spinning off its axis. How are you doing out there in Berkeley? Actually, I think we're going to reopen faster than you. Who would have thought? But I think this is uh, due to widespread civil disobedience and pressure on our leaders. People have just had it out in California, which everybody knew was going to happen when the temperature got above 80 degrees. I mean, Californians just have to hit the beach. And they can't. They that, just weren't going to exactly listen to people right. about social distancing, I'm afraid. Unlike here in D.C., where everyone is a minion of the government, and so they listen very carefully to what government says. And there's there's no civil disobedience here. But you know where there is civil disobedience, John? There is civil disobedience in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, yes. And we're going to get to Hong Kong. We're going to talk about everything that's happening because we may have crossed a Rubicon with Hong Kong this week. Uh, there's other news out of China. And to talk about that, because we haven't talked for a couple weeks, we need to catch up. We have uh, a fantastic guest. Uh, it is a real pleasure to be able to welcome Bill Bishop to the Pacific Century podcast. Um, for those of you who are China hands, Bill needs no introduction. For those of you who particularly are in the D.C. area, um, you work on China policy, uh, you work on China business, then you know Bill as the the mastermind, the eminence degrees behind Sinocism. Um, probably the most widely read newsletter on uh, China. Um we're going to say hi to Bill in a second. I just want to let those folks who don't know about Bill give him a, a brief introduction. Uh, Bill is a former entrepreneur uh, and a media executive who lived in China for over 10 years. Uh, in 2015, he left Beijing and came to Washington, D.C. Uh, he's written the China newsletter for Axios, which some of you may know about, the China Insider columns for the New York Times Deal Book. Uh, he co-founded MarketWatch.com, and he is a regular presence uh, in the media. But again, as I mentioned, he's probably the most widely read newsletter out there, which is Sinocism. So, Bill, welcome to Pacific Century. Uh, thanks for having me, and thanks for that effusive introduction. I'm pretty sure I can only disappoint people now, but I'll try. Well, so you, you'll, you'll fit in perfectly with us, then. That's all we do every time is disappoint people. So. You, had, you had a Jewish and Asian mother, that would be predetermined. <laughs> right. well, I, have a, I have a Chinese mother-in-law. So oh, the worst of all fates, the worst of all fates. <laughs> this is just this is a, a a perfect collection here of of uh, men who can't live up to the expectations. Um, but that said, we're going to try our best because there is really a huge amount of news that's been uh, that's been coming out. Um, I know that Hong Kong is really on everybody's minds, and and we're going to get to that. But I think uh, we need to we need to start uh, inside uh, the belly of the beast, so to speak. And uh, Bill, maybe you could 
tell us a little bit about what's been going on the past week in Beijing with the National People's Congress and maybe give a, just a really thumbnail uh, explanation of what the Congress is, why it's important, but more importantly, what happened uh, this, this past week. Uh, sure. So every year, the uh, China holds what are called the two sessions. It's usually the first week of March. Uh, this year, obviously, it was delayed because of the uh, pandemic. And the two sessions are two bodies. One is what they call this Chinese People's Political Consultative Conf uh, Con Conference, which is um, sort of a collection of other Democratic parties and overseas Chinese, um, among others, is kind of their version of consultative democracy, as they call it. The other is the National People's Congress, which is the legislature. And so the NPC really is the more meaningful meeting. And every year you'll get the premier's report where he'll talk about how the government did in terms of the targets that it set for the, the previous year as well as usually lay out the economic targets for and other other important targets for the for the coming year. Um, this year, I think the big takeaways um, from the National People's Congress, the NPC, were one for the first time in several decades, China is not giving a GDP growth target because the number is so bad and, you know, because of the pandemic. And so it was just they want to focus on more qualitative goals. Two, of course, is um, they took the step to effectively go around the uh, local legislature in Hong Kong and push through a draft of a national security law. So um, so that. So the national security law is what's really dominated the headlines uh, this week because of because of the, what's going on. You know the implications now for Hong Kong and the U.S. reaction in other countries. Um, domestically, though, uh, the the work report, the way they laid out the the economic and development goals for this year, as well as one particular law, the Civil Code, which is this big body of laws for uh, for China, um, are pretty important moves. But of course, I think the one that's most meaningful from a global context is the decision to push forward this, this um, draft law for Hong Kong. So, Bill, before we get to Hong Kong, uh, which which really has the potential, I think, of, of turning into a, uh, a crisis, um, a little bit more on the National People's uh, People's Congress. Uh, you know, back in the the Cold War, we were just very good about, uh, or we thought we were very good about, you know, reading through the Sovietological um, tea leaves uh, about who was up and who was down, what was happening. Um, we obviously missed certain big things, but you know, we we really have so far fewer people like yourself who are, are really deeply steeped in uh, what goes on with the party and, and the, the party state and the government. Um, are, do you see anything different uh, in terms of the National People's Congress this year because of the corona crisis? Uh, you mentioned, of course, that uh, they, they dropped the um, the growth rate target, uh, which is, you know, probably to be expected. But what is there anything that, that you're picking up that that would indicate that this is really a period of, of particular uh, stress or, or, or danger uh, for the for the party, for Xi, for the government? Um, so I think, uh, you know, and, and I should have said earlier with the MPC, it's it's the state uh, legislature or parliament. Of course, the party and the party Congress um, is actually much more meaningful than than the state bit of the party state government in China. Um, so, and that happens usually, only once every five years, by the way. Uh, and once every five years, but usually there's a plenum every every right. calendar year. Yeah. Um, so, so when you look at, I think what's really worrying. Um, 
the, the the party and she and the government is, you know, it comes down to, I think, the two two big messages we've been getting um, consistently for the last several weeks, which is one is the continued what they call ep- epidemic control and prevention. So even though China has come out of this pandemic, you know, they're, they're down to a handful of cases a day now um, from their official data. Um, they're still very, very concerned about a second wave. And so they're, they're putting in place all these sort of different measures they have to track people, test people, um, and, and, they're, and they're making that sort of a permanent feature, or at least a feature until um, the global pandemic is, is over. Um, and so that is something that now is, you know, it's one of the top political tasks for officials in China is to make sure that you don't have an outbreak in your area of responsibility. Um, the other bit is around the economy, and specifically because, you know, the Chinese economy, the domestic demand is recovering uh, since since their bottoming after the the outbreak, uh, but the collapse of the global economy is 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 a pretty significant drag. And so, um, about a month ago or so, the Politburo uh, introduced the you know they've they've been talking about the six stabilities for the last couple of years about what they need to do for economic policy to stabilize things like foreign trade. Um, they introduced this concept of these six insurers and really top of the list and the thing that the one that's gotten the most attention or most um, sort of focus has been employment because they're very, very worried about um, unemployment and underemployment. And, you know, that has been the source of all sorts of social instability for, you know, in any country, right, especially in China, and they have a history with it. So um, they're very focused on making sure that um, the 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 employment issue does not become one that sparks other um, other kinds of political problems. You know, you watch so carefully what's going on uh, inside China, and there is still a debate over the extent of the, uh, and it's become part of the propaganda debate, uh, the propaganda war over the extent of uh, the coronavirus uh, that broke out in Wuhan initially, but, uh, you know, the the, um, government uh, doubled or or increased by half the number of casualties, uh, victims uh, in Wuhan. They've increased numbers. What do you? What is your sense and anything you've seen and read as to really just how widespread uh, this was? How many people uh, may have had it? Because of course the 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 rhetorical argument on the part of the Chinese uh, on, the, on the part of the government and the party is that we handled this much better than the West. Look at they've got uh, what do they call it? Carnage of a hundred thousand deaths in America. Uh, what is your best estimate as to what? actually happened? So, you know, I think the the true number, uh, at least the height of the outbreak, was uh, higher than the official data suggested. I think now it's relatively under control. I think you, when you look at how life is returning in most places in China, um, they're, they're good indications that they feel pretty confident they have it under control. In terms of what happened, you know, you had a combination of some cover-ups at the beginning. Then you, you had, I think, uh, also, like we see in other countries, including here, you know, there's there were testing issues, difficulties of actually counting, you know, what's a case, what's not a case. Um, so the, the numbers get fuzzy. But just given how um, given how the, the Communist Party handles data in general, 
uh, it's very difficult to say, yes, that's the exact accurate number. Um, and so the question is, well, how, how low, how much lower is it than the real number? And how much of that was by malice? And how much of that was just by the fact that they really, like most countries are in this pandemic, kind of in the fog of war? And and I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. But, you know, you wouldn't, there were people saying, you know, it was, you know, orders of magnitude, orders of magnitude, more people died from the virus. You, you would, you would hear about that on Chinese social media, other outlets, if, if that were really true. And just to switch uh, gears, um, as uh, everyone who's going to listen to this podcast knows, um, the Beijing government has announced that it's going to push for the enactment of a national security law to cover Hong Kong rather than, as it had been doing, expecting uh, the legislature in Hong Kong to do it. Uh, could you explain why is this so significant? Uh, you know, you see a lot of reports in the press about the end of Hong Kong's autonomy, about China grabbing Hong Kong, about it breaking the agreement with Great Britain in the handover. Um, is that really what's happening here with this uh, law? And if so, uh, why is Beijing doing this now? And what can other countries do to respond? Uh, the easy question. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so, so, you know, this national security law, they, they actually had tried to enact one in 2003, and, and it sparked a uh, large enough protest that the uh, Hong Kong government at the time backed down. And um, this is something that Beijing had always wanted to push through, and they had just, for various reasons, had not pushed too hard on it. Um, of course, over the last year plus, we've seen you know, lots of protests in Hong Kong as uh, over a different law, the, the extradition law, where the idea was that um, the people could be extradited back to mainland China for um, if the if the PRC mainland legal system issued the proper, you know, warrant, whatever they want to call it. Um, but I think that you know the the national security law as as it's drafted as as we've as they've described it um, will allow the the PRC to openly set up their security organs like the like their Ministry of State Security which is kind of like the KGB CIA combination um, and other security organs in inside of Hong Kong it means that the way it looks like the, the way they define it from what we can read it's it's very broad so it's basically a catch all for kind of anything they want to say is violating national security or being, you know, some sort of a terrorist act. And, you know, the thing is, is, inside China, inside the mainland, there's a ton of support for this because, you know, for the last year plus, Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kong has been a bit of a mess. You know, there have been these, these protests over, you know, really against the, the first triggered by this extradition law, but then broadening out to a set of demands that really were, um, you know, pushing for the government to give the people what they thought they were promised. And so, you know, it, before the pandemic, the protests were pretty regular. They were, you know, they were hurting business. There were there were a lot of large companies or, you know, they don't like they don't like what's going on um, inside. You know, the way they've um, the, 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 the mainland Chinese uh, propaganda organs have been sort of have portrayed it. You know, they, they've they've done a very good job of guiding people to be really inside China to be mad about Hong Kong. But the fact is, is a lot of people in China were happy to be mad at Hong Kong anyway. So it kind of was a was an easy pitch to say, you know, these people, these radicals, they're, you know, they're they're causing chaos in Hong Kong. They're trying to split Hong Kong from the from the motherland. And oh, by the way, of course they're being supported by the black hands like the Americans and other foreigners and other for hostile foreign forces as they call it. And so um the 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 thinking had been that they might try the that Beijing might try and force it through the local legislature later this year, 
Um, but it was it had become clear that it, it, I think that was going to be politically impossible and would probably lead to much more um, much more significant protests. And so um, they had figured out a way to argue that they have the legal right to impose this law through an annex to the basic law, and they can basically go around the local legislature, the National People's Congress, the NPC, passes the draft, the NPC Standing Committee um, would approve it, and then they would promulgate it and the law goes into effect. And so um, it it will fundamentally change the, the um, open ability of the PRC to influence act- things inside Hong Kong as well as take legal actions. It will um, have a, a likely a very chilling effect on the protests. Um, it's unclear what it will do to the flow of information around, say, freedom of press, freedom of speech. Um, it will likely... Um, restrict certain types of speech even more than now. You know, they're about to pass an anthem law, a national, like a national, um, I think it's national flag law, national anthem laws, which are very restrictive about how you can't basically, you can't um, mock or insult the national anthem, the national flag. Um, and so we're seeing a real constriction. And and the thing where it, where it gets to something that, you know, the global community is worried about, in addition to sort of the whole values discussion and, you know, you know, are we are we witnessing sort of authoritarianism on the march and the crushing of a of a bastion of relatively um, relative freedom on the shores of mainland China? You have the issue of well, it was in a um, a treaty with the UK, and basically the UK is and others outside scholars, non-Chinese scholars are saying that the Chinese are effectively thumbing their nose at, a, at an international treaty that they signed. Two is that. Um, you know, the U.S. has treats Hong Kong differently than it treats the PRC mainland in terms of trade and immigration. And because of the law that was passed, I think, at the end of last year um, in the U.S., now every year the, the Secretary of State has to certify that Hong Kong remains um, mostly or um, largely autonomous from the from the PRC mainland. He just, Secretary Pompeo just came out a couple of days ago and said they don't, they aren't, because obviously they aren't now. And so that then allows the, the U.S. government and the, the president to trigger a whole bunch of different actions to effectively um, restrict or reduce no, or remove me, those special status. Let me just pause you there for a sec. So, um, so one, it sounds like you're saying if uh, the mainland wanted to, they could now incorporate Hong Kong uh, into the way they run the mainland. And for example, just uh, one example, could uh, Beijing now say Hong Kong is now going to be behind the Great Firewall and start subjecting right, Hong Kong communications and use of the internet to the censorship regime that exists in the mainland. And then uh, I guess the, the broader point is there are a number of laws and sanctions that could be triggered. Why should the United States care? I mean, you know, the Chinese well, argument has always been this is part of China. It's internal governance. Um, why should the United States want to start right, ratcheting up even more relations with China about how China treats Hong Kong about, you know, what's the American interest? Uh, so again, I think it depends who you talk to. One is certainly the values argument that I raised, where you have people yeah. say this is, you know, this is authoritarianism on the march. We have to make a stand. Mm-hmm. Um, another is 
that okay if 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 it really is obvious that it, it really isn't any different than another than, than any other mainland Chinese city then why are we why for example they have special status when it comes to high-tech exports for example or why is immigration you know why why is it a different visa regime for Hong Kong citizens than it is for uh, or for Hong Kong residents than it is for PRC citizens um, you know the problem for the US though is you know so why should we care it, it, it also I think you have to take into account the overall positioning or the view, I think, for the U.S. government towards the relationship with China. And, you know, this is something that the U.S. has um, made a big deal about for a while. Um, we're seeing, you know, there's a broader theme about how the, the U.S. is very worried about how uh, it sees the PRC or says the PRC is hollowing out existing global institutions and trying to reshape the global global order. So you have them basically saying, you know, we signed a treaty, of, you know, a couple decades ago, and now we don't care. We're going to do what we want. Um, you also, though, have the uh, question again, if we've been making a lot of noise about this, so if, ne if then they go ahead and do it and they do something that has a lot of, you know, a lot of people inside Hong Kong worried and we do nothing, well, then that just shows that the U.S. basically is doesn't stand up for its values and basically the Chinese can do whatever they want and they have impunity. I mean, that, that's, that I think is the argument we're sort of in right now. But ultimately, why should we care? You know, it, it's a, it's a, we are, looking at a China that, I mean, it's a very different China than it was when Hong Kong was handed, when Hong Kong was handed over. And uh, under Xi Jinping, it is, it is a, a, a much stronger, much more authoritarian, um, and in many ways, much more assertive country globally. And so the question is, do, you know, and one of the things we were, people, quite honestly, you know, the, the view is that if, if they don't, if they start, you know, they get Hong Kong and there's no cost, then it's it's something that's it, it emboldens them and they're going to push even further. And of course, the big next big one is Taiwan, right? Because Taiwan and Hong Kong were the two bits of the one country, two systems. And this move, this national security law for Hong Kong, you know, effectively makes it one country, one system for the most part. You know, they're the officials. Are, sorry. Yeah, actually, that's a great point. I, I just want to jump in there um, for a second uh, before you move off of it too much, because you raised an, uh, a really important point about uh, this is not the the China of 1997, uh, where uh, it was it was so much weaker and smaller, and Hong Kong correspondingly was much more important to to China. What 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 is Hong Kong's importance to Beijing today? I mean, you have other financial centers, uh, you have Shanghai, you have uh, you have a, a much larger economy, you have the, the ability of bringing capital in uh, in more direct ways. Uh, is it purely symbolic uh, or is it uh, that they do get something material by by being able to control Hong Kong more directly? What what is Hong Kong's importance to the party, to the party state today? So economically, it's still important and financially it's important, um, but it is it is less than it used to be. Politically, it's more important. And especially Given the protests, it's it's very important domestically for the party to be able to say we we got Hong Kong under control. We've gotten rid of the you know we stopped the protests because you know the thing they fear the most with these protests is a, a an infection that would you know an ideological infection that would go from Hong Kong into the rest of mainland China um, that could lead to um, more 
pressures and potentially social instability. And so, but economically, it's it's not insignificant. Um, but also, it's part of this, you know, Xi Jinping, you know, he's not the first leader, but he's the most, um, uh, he, he's the one who's really pushed it the hardest, this idea of the, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And, you know, that, that, as part of that definition, that includes reunifying the nation. And Hong Kong is a, you know, it's a scar in Chinese history because of the colonial history, right? And so that was why it was one of the reasons it was so important for them to take it back in 97. But it can't, you know, to, to, to affect this great rejuvenation, they can't have a insurgency on their board, you know, in part of the country, right? And and also, though, that's where it gets a little scary for Taiwan, because the last bit of that rejuvenation, reunification bit is Taiwan. And, and it seems that uh, at least there's been reporting that some of the rhetoric uh, at the National People's Congress um, surrounding Taiwan has changed. Uh, I don't know if, if you've picked up on that, if that's correct, that there's, uh, there are in certain cases, they have dropped the using the word peaceful reunification with Taiwan, and clearly it has been a, a goal of, of Xi. Are we, first of all, have you heard that? And secondly, do you think we're really heading into a potential danger period? You know, some people are calling this the equivalent of, of 1936 in the Sudetenland, that if, as, as you were hinting that if Beijing gets away with this uh, with really little uh, little cost, then it may be emboldened in some way to do the much more complicated, more complex, and then would certainly be much bloodier attempt to try to rein in Taiwan. What are your thoughts about that? So the so the bits about the that the, the they had dropped the peaceful in front of unification, they actually added it back in the final version of the work report, um, and it was used by other officials. So it, it's not clear what was going on there, if it were simply an oversight or was some other strange messaging, but or, or maybe they tried it, they saw the reaction and they put it back in. Um, but cl- clearly, though, you know, Taiwan, the success of, of Taiwan, um, you know, the recent successful elections, you know, and Taiwan is further is pulling further away from that goal, from the PRC goal of reunification than getting closer. And so the the. The idea that there'll be some sort of a peaceful reunification where Taiwan will go willingly seems much, much less likely than it did, um, you know, even five or six years ago. And so, but the Chinese, the Chinese side has not really, or the PRC side has not really given a hard deadline for when it has to be rejoined the motherland, as they would call it, or be liberated, as some would call it, um, or some would say it. And so there's some flexibility there. And, you know, Taiwan is, 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 it's always a risk. There are always, you know, there's always the risk that China will try something. I think that the, from a capability perspective, they're certainly a lot closer to being able to do it than they were, say, 10 years ago. But it's, it's not clear that, they could, and it's also not clear that if they did, um, what would they really end up with? And and they, I really don't think they're interested in a in a in a military approach to taking Taiwan right now. It's it doesn't it doesn't fit with the overall um, kind of positioning China and the CCP are trying to give itself globally. And so, um, but you know, six months ago, who thought the world would be in lockdown? Right. So it seems like 2020, the year where all sorts of unthinkable things become thinkable. Well, let me, um, Bill, ask, just ask you to pursue your thinking there. So China wants to reabsorb Taiwan and they are 
pushing out into the South China Sea. They are building a you know navy that's going to be large, you know, certainly larger than the Seventh Fleet, and will challenge the U.S. in the Pacific. Um, and so I could see how Hong Kong is a part of that. And so, what are United States policymakers? left to do. What would you recommend if uh, President Trump or maybe a President Biden were to appoint you the National Security Council Special Advisor on China? What would you be telling them is the are the best options for American responses consistent with our means and what we can actually do? First, I'd say fire me and hire Matt Pottinger. Um, <laughs> but, but, but second, second, I would say that. Um, well, he'd probably want to switch jobs with you right now. Give him the number one might. China blog and make you do all the hard work. Uh, <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, the problem for the U.S. right now is no matter what we do, Hong Kong, China's not going to, you know, Beijing's not going to change its approach. I mean, Hong Kong is part of China, and they pretty much hold all the cards. And so the U.S. can. Um, you know they can they can change the trading relationship and the immigration relationship by 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 removing all our parts of the special status. We can you know there's some some talk of certain types of sanctions going after individuals, going after financial institutions, for example. Um, the U.S. could do all that, and that would that would that would impose some pain on Beijing, but it wouldn't fundamentally change the trajectory. And so the the question though for the U.S. I think really is. You know, from from a you know, you look at the, what's happened over the last seven or eight years, right? South China Sea. You know, the, the Chinese, the U.S. has good satellites. The U.S. saw what was going on in the South China Sea, and yet, for whatever reason, couldn't, wouldn't, decided not to try anything to to effectively prevent the South China Sea be, from becoming Chinese Lake as they built up all those artificial structures. And so, um, the. When you look at, so the U.S. has tried, they put out a joint statement today with, with New Zealand, or sorry, with Australia, Canada, U.K., not New Zealand. So four four eyes, not five eyes. Um, but, you know, the, the, the U.S. is as powerful as we are. We alone can't change Chinese behavior. And so this is something where it, it, the U.S. can do certain things and has certain, certain tools around sanctions, et cetera, that other countries may not. But ultimately... To really push back, the U.S. needs to build its own uh, united front, and and that is kind of a squishy answer because a lot of countries, a lot of Europe, a lot of countries, you know, China, I think, has the is the top trading partner with like 120 something countries around the world, right? There are a lot of countries that have no interest in getting in this fight. And if you look at the statements of of um, condemnation or concern about the the Hong Kong national security law, um, Japan said something. I don't think any of the other Asian countries have said anything. Right. And so um, it, it, it's there, there's sort of the short term tactical. How do we deal with Hong Kong? But there's the broader sort of how do we how do we figure out how we and the U.S. leads? But how do we get a group of like minded countries that want to try and have a broader pushback on what look like, you know, China's pretty aggressive global ambitions? Um, Bill, let me ask a, a sort of a wrap-up question here, um, because it chimes in again perfectly with what you just said. These, these, the, what appear to be, uh, and I think certainly from our perspective, aggressive global ambitions. You know, the the debate is beginning to to shift. Obviously, about uh, the limits of engagement, about questions over what's called decoupling, uh, but but even a little bit more fundamentally about uh, the, the the strengths of the regime. Uh, the strengths within China itself. And of course, 
a lot of the world's reaction to China over the past 20 years, 20 plus years, has been sort of betting on the future multiple, right? It's It's been assuming that China would become as big as people were hoping, and therefore you were changing some of your behavior before it had actually achieved a certain level of strength or influence or, right. or the like. Um but there's another narrative, uh, you know, which is taken to some extremes by some. But in general, it's that you know, China's weaker in many ways than than it appears. Um, the Chinese can use that at times, you know, to to say don't pressure us. But what's your what's your take on that? Is is it? Uh, do you think that she, in any of his calculations, is actually concerned about the future trajectory? Uh, of growth in China and therefore is trying to move now uh, to uh, obtain certain very important goals because he may not, and China may not be able to achieve them, the party may not be able to achieve them later? So that's a great question. And um, the answer is kind of a, and a squishy one where the, where the answer is yes, um, I think, to all that. I mean, it's, it's a, sort of a, a very um, complex situation. You look at Xi and you look at what he's been talking about over the last couple of years. He's really, he's talked a lot about the risks that China faces. And those risks are domestic from things around the economy um, to international. He's also talked about the opportunities China faces. So they, they like to say, um, basically, the world is, is changing um, Let's say right term. It's um, uh, basically the world is changing in ways it hasn't changed in 100 years. And so in that statement, there's the there's lots of uncertainty. There's lots of risk, but there's lots of opportunity. And so I think like the move, for example, you know, the move is to, to, in the South China Sea, the move it, in Hong Kong, those are extremely popular domestically. They don't even require a lot of crazy propaganda work. They're, they're just, they fit with this broader, you know, China is rising, um, you know, this, this broader nationalism in China. I think, you know, why is he doing it now in Hong Kong? Well, you know, from what it sounds like, um, they decided last fall at this fourth plenum that they were going to use this mechanism um, at the NPC rather than the local legislature to push through this law. So I think they had decided last fall that basically Hong Kong was was getting to the point where it was pretty near chaos. You know, things were, the, the economy was breaking down um, and that they, they needed ways to, you know, to fix it that were not sending in the tanks, which a lot of people were worried about, you know, we'd see another June 4th. And, and so this, but ultimately he also, I think, feels like what's the world going to do? You know, what cost did China did China pay for the South China Sea? Basically zero. What cost did China pay for the the arbitral ruling in favor of the Philippines in the last few, I think the last few months of the Obama presidency? Nothing. Right. And so I think ultimately, you know, Hong Kong, it's a domestic issue. It's a political security issue. And, you know, the thing is, is what a lot of Chinese analysts have been saying and some folks I've talked to is just that this is a sign, though, that the, that the China doesn't care about what the U.S. thinks anymore. And it's a sign that they see U.S. the relationship with the U.S. is so bad that why not? Right. And so, you know, I have to say um, the, the sort of the folks in the PRC side I talked to, you know, the over the last year, the, some of the folks inside the system, they've been more negative about the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship than the folks in D.C. are, because they see forces inside That's China, That's hard to too. believe, actually. That's amazing. I, I, I will, you know, as, as one of the people I, I you know, talked to says, you know, he's been saying for the last year and a half, today is the best day of U.S.-China relations for the next several decades. Um, 
Right. And and so the, the point is that there, you know, again, there's this, you know, we see it in the Wolf Warrior diplomats that everyone's been writing about or talking about. We have these much more aggressive PRC diplomats on Twitter, you know, on Facebook, on YouTube, just speaking to the public. Um, you know, there I, I guarantee you there are Wolf Warriors inside the PLA. Um, and, and, you know, we haven't seen them yet. I hope we don't see them anytime soon. But the and so you know this is this is China's moment and you know Trump is is both a nightmare and a dream for the Chinese the Chinese the CCP they love contradictions I mean you know you study the Soviet Union you know you understand contradiction and and and, and so on the one hand China Trump has been been a pain for them it's caused them a lot of problems in the relation on the other hand he's created a lot of space for them internationally um, and so this is. And again, you know, the pandemic, China has come through the pandemic looking better, at least domestically, looking better than most other countries. That The propaganda, again, writes itself inside China. And there's a ton of support for what she's doing. And then you couple that with a slowing economy, the issues around, like, employment and, you know, just the, there, there are lots of reasons to appeal to the darker sides of things for domestic political reasons, just as we're seeing, I think, here and most countries would see. And we'll see during the pandemic. So it's it's a very, I think it's a very worrisome time because there are just, there's a lot of pressures. If you look at the U.S.-China relationship, there are just a lot of pressures in both capitals um, to a much more difficult and acrimonious relationship. And there are very few towards finding some sort of a way to put a floor in the, in the downward trajectory of the relationship. Well, Bill is probably the best person to ask if it's true that there is a Chinese adage, may you live in interesting times. Uh, and if it is if it is true, um, then unfortunately we're in the interesting times. I mean, if you've been an Asia person uh, like, uh, you know, like Bill and, and myself, we've been waiting for decades for Asia to get the attention in D.C. that it deserved. Uh, and now we have it. And it's it's extremely disconcerting. Uh, it, it is a challenge, obviously, unlike any we've we've faced. We have, we, we haven't talked today about uh, about North Korea. We haven't talked today about other issues in in the region. We haven't talked about growing Islamism and in, in the Asian South. I mean, there are a lot of enormous uh, problems, but but all of them pale in comparison to to China. So to hear that, uh, you know, fairly pessimistic summation from you, Bill, um, is really, to me, it's a call to arms. Um, we need to have a lot more conversations, not only like this, but they need to be informed conversations, and they need to be with with the small number of people we have, like you, who really, uh, you know, to the extent possible for someone who isn't born there and in the system, knows what's going on and watches what's going on. And this has been, I think, incredibly enlightening into uh, the current current political situation in uh, in China. So thank you. Um, we will basically come up against our time, but thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, uh, for giving us your insights. Again, for those who don't know it, it's Sinocism, S-I-N-O-C-I-S-M dot com. You, you need to go check it out. Uh, because everyone in D.C. reads it, and uh, it, it's uh, a service, and um, we appreciate it. We hope you'll be able to join us again, Bill. Well, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bill. Hey, and uh, Misha, thanks for uh, coming back for another episode of yeah, the Pacific Century. And we're going to have Bill back on again for sure. And uh, I guess I should say on behalf of the Hoover Institution and me and Misha and Bill, thanks everybody for joining us today. Thank you and bye-bye. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.